The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Gracious God, we thank you that you wrap around us everlasting, strong, mighty arms. Arms that claim your people and that hold them and protect them. We thank you for that. And we do pray as some of our minds are attached back to last Sunday at the praying for the persecuted church. Lord, would your arms be strong to save them? Those who do suffer in ways that we are not very familiar with ourselves. Wrap around them tight to save them. And Lord, we pray, draw us near to you today, right now. Draw us up close to you and teach us because, Lord, we need to hear from you. There are many of us here today coming from all different places with all different needs. Lord, you know. You know who we are. You know what we need. Would you meet us? Speak to us. Touch us. Bring rest to our hearts. Lord, speak through your word. This is your word. It is your church. Would you teach it? Give grace to me to speak truth and give grace to each of us here to hear it. We love you and we trust you, Lord. Amen. You come home, you toss the keys on the countertop and you collapse into the sofa. It was a long day, a long day filled with difficult people and demanding situations, holding your breath all day long, just hoping that things work out today, that you can deal with those folks, that the contract goes through, that you don't mess something up again, that you finally today understand this program. Now you're home. It's a long day. And just sit there on the couch, you look, and oh man, the bills that are on the counter next to the keys, they need some attention. As does your family, as does that garage door opener that doesn't work anymore, as does dinner, as does your knee that just for months has been just killing you and is throbbing even now as you sit down on the couch. Man, I need a vacation or a date or a movie night or a bonus at work, or two more hours in every day so I can get everything done, or two more hours at night so I can get a little more sleep. Something. I need something. You do. You need rest. Physical rest, perhaps. We are a frenetic people. Constantly running around. Always active. We have a hard time just being. You probably do need physical rest. But not all physical rest is created equal. Because, you, you know, it's possible that you could sleep all the day long, rest in that way, and you'd get up the next day in just as much turmoil in here, just as much churning on the inside as you had the day before. You might need, you probably do need some physical rest, but, but beyond that, what you really need is rest in here, spiritual rest. And ultimately, that rest only comes from God. Our passage this morning is going to touch on that issue. 
We're in John chapter 5 here. And the, the central thrust of this passage is concerned with revealing something more about Jesus to us. That's what the whole book is about. If you recall, John's written this book so that we would see that Jesus is the Messiah. And so believing we'd have life in him. So he's constantly showing us Jesus, something new, every day, all the time. So that's the main thrust here this morning. But in one, once we have identified him, once we see something about him, what we're also going to find is that attached to that is something new about what he means to be for us and again a call to us to come to him that's what we're going to look at let me read the passage now discuss some of the details that it raises before coming to two summary points at the end we're in john chapter 5 reading from the english standard version verses 1 to 18 after this there was a feast of the jews and jesus went up to jerusalem Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The passage begins with, after this, after the healing in Galilee that we saw last week, there was another Jewish high holiday feast, and so Jesus went up again to Jerusalem. At this point, it's helpful to note that he's no longer, John is no longer writing based strictly on chronology. Up to this point, he's been tracing through the days pretty closely, two days after this, and three days here, and the next day he did this. Well, he's left that for a little while, and now he's moving into a new section where he's not following chronology, but he's following subject matter. What we're going to be in for the next several chapters is the account of how conflict rose between Jesus, arose between Jesus and the Jewish people, particularly the authorities. And so what John's doing is he's gathering together information to show us how that happened. Up till now, he'd been pretty popular, but misunderstood. But as he teaches more and more explicitly with his words and with his actions, 
That popularity is going to fade away pretty quickly. He's gathering together examples to show us how that happened. And the first one he pulls is this one that happened in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, just to the north of the temple, there's a gate there, the sheep gate, in which they brought the sheep into the temple. Just to the north of that, there was a pool. And this pool was surrounded by five colonnades. And a colonnade is like a, um, like a, a walkway, like a, a broad sidewalk or a patio area with pillars that lined the side of it and had a roof over the top. So it was a roofed walkway, and there were four of them around the pool like a rectangle, and one that went right through the middle and actually divided the pool in half into two parts. And the whole thing was called the Pool of Bethesda. And this whole area was just overrun with sick and injured and maimed and disabled people of all sorts. You see that in the text there. A multitude, lots of people there. Now, but why were they there? You probably have a footnote in your Bible or some marking in the text that gives us a little clue to that. Verse 4 was not actually in the book that John wrote. It's not actually in the Bible. You probably have a footnote that indicates that. That's why I didn't read verse 4. It was not in the original, the older manuscripts. This is basically how we know this. Scholars can look and say the older manuscripts didn't have verse 4, but as we get on and on and on, people began to add them in, add this comment in, and eventually somebody just wrote it into the text. It's not actually original, though. That's why I didn't read it. But it is probably true. It's probably an accurate reflection of what the people actually were thinking, and it's helpful for us to understand the situation and to help us interpret verse 7, what the man says down there. So what was going on? Well, evidently there was an underground spring that contributed some of the water to this pool, and local superstition had it that every now and then when this bubbled up, what was actually going on was that an angel was coming down, stirring the pool, and first one in gets healed. So people from everywhere came and they hung out by this pool and just laid there, hoping to see the water stirred, hoping to get in first, and hoping to be healed. Superstitious, but people were hopeless. That must have been a sad place if you think about that. So much physical sorrow there, and so much spiritual, emotional sorrow there. Nothing to do but lie around hour upon hour and day upon day, just hoping in this little thin hope that maybe the water will stir, maybe I'll get in first, and maybe it'll heal me. A sad thing. Hopelessness. And of course, all this was spiritually contrary to Judaism because it was so superstitious. These folks were not trusting in the Lord of the Bible to to heal their hearts amidst their diseases or to heal their diseases. They're hoping in magic water. And so no self-respecting religious Jew would have spent much time there. He didn't want to be associated with that. Furthermore, because part of this pool was used to wash the sheep going into the temple, it was in many different ways a pretty dirty place. And there was a great probability of coming into, something, coming into contact with something there, either the disease or the uncleanness from the sheep, that would make one spiritually unclean, ceremonially unclean. This is a place that would have been avoided by common religious Jews. But of course, Jesus is there. By now, you kind of expect to find him there, don't you? That's what he's like, doing things that religious people don't do. Engaging with and caring about this disabled, perhaps paralyzed man 
who has spent most of his life there, 38 years. It's a long time. And he speaks to the man. Do you want to be well? Now, in asking this, this man this question, Jesus is not intending to teach us some kind of, of truth about how healing works or how recovery from addiction works. Recent years, people have tried to read into this some theory about how in order to get healed, you first have to actually want to be healed, want to get better. That theory may be true, may not be, but it may be, but it's not in this verse. You have to find that somewhere else. All Jesus is doing here with this question is engaging the man and actually offering him something. He does this repeatedly throughout the, the book. He engages and offers in the form of a question. Do you want to get well? In other words, pay attention, I've got something for you. Listen up. But like the Samaritan, the man doesn't get it. He's stuck in his present reality, doesn't really get the drift of the offer, and so he responds, probably somewhat in a somewhat annoyed manner, well, yes, of course I want to get well, that's why I'm here. But the problem is, I have to get into the water first. When the magic water stirs, I need to get there, but I can't because look at me, and so I'm stuck. To which Jesus responds, oh, well, I'll help you get into the water. No. To which Jesus responds, oh, well, let me anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, and pray for you, and maybe God will heal you. No. To which Jesus responds, get up and go home. And he's healed. Simply, suddenly, surprisingly, he's just healed. That's all. John loves to tell his miracle stories like this with nothing to it. He just heals a 38-year-long malady. Suddenly. Now, now imagine that you are a member of, of John's primary audience here the group that he's most pointedly writing to, Greek-speaking Jews who don't live in Israel, who live throughout the Roman Empire. They read this, you read this, and these are your people, your brethren, back in Jerusalem, right near the temple. And it's a mass of people, sorrowful people, pitiful people, hopeless people, shunned people, like harassed and downcast sheep without a shepherd, huddled around this pool. Compassion stirs in you when you see this, when you think about them, and then Jesus wades into their midst, risking ceremonial uncleanliness, throwing it all to the wind. He wades in. He selects a particularly forlorn man, one who's there to be helped by the water but can't even get into the water and has been there for 38 years. And it's not a man who says, Jesus, help me. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't ask. He doesn't do anything. Jesus walks in, picks him out, and heals him. And as you see this, you're reading about this, and it's mercy. It's compassion. It's a beautiful gesture. Your heart's stirred, and you're reminded about what the prophet said about the Lord as the shepherd of his sheep. You're reminded what the prophet said about what the day of the Messiah would be like. When Messiah would come and the lame would leap for joy. It's a beautiful gesture. Intriguing. It makes you wonder and think. Your heart's drawn out and so you keep on reading and, and you come to, and a Sabbath was that day. With Sabbath front loaded for emphasis. A Sabbath was that day. Ugh. 
No way. He did that on a Sabbath? You've got to be kidding me. What am I supposed to do with that, Jesus? You told the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Such a beautiful, good, compassionate thing in violation of the law. Good grief. It's like if you were to see someone who is feeding a group of neglected, feeding and clothing a group of neglected homeless children with money that he got from robbing your neighbor. What do you do with that? It creates a tension inside of you because there's something that is undeniably good that appears undeniably bad. It makes you think and wrestle with it inside here. John, under the inspiration of God, has created some interesting traction here. It makes you wrestle with, especially if you're Jewish, makes you wrestle with who is Jesus in relation to the Sabbath. And that makes clear that it's not really the healing that's the deal here. It's when he did it. The Sabbath is the issue. Let's talk for a minute about Sabbath. The Sabbath, or, or the day of rest, the time of rest, the seventh day of the week, the seventh year in a group of years, the seventh seventh in a group of seven years, on and on. This idea of Sabbath, rest, resting one in seven, has deep roots in Judaism, going all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, when God created. In that, in that book, Moses is beginning to teach the children of Israel, who had just come out of slavery in Egypt, where they'd been immersed for 400 years, in all of the gods and deities and worship of Egypt, he's beginning to reintroduce them, if you will, to their God. And he's explaining, your God is not one of the gods. As if there's your God and then elsewhere there are other gods, in other places or in other worlds somewhere. That's not the case, guys. Your God is the God, the one and only God who made absolutely everything everywhere. If it exists at all, he made it. And then after he was done doing that, on the seventh day, he sat down and he rested. Now, not literally. God is a spirit. He wasn't taxed by doing any of this. He didn't need to put his feet up on, the, on, the, uh, on a bench or something like that and get a, get a cool beverage. He wasn't tired. He's not actually resting. What he's doing is he's stepping back and this rest is his approving completion it's as if so to speak God puts down the hammer and the drill and steps back and says nice if I do say so myself and I do nice whoever made this knows what he's doing oh that's me and it sets up a habit of wanting other people to do the same thing come over here and look at this Whoever made that knows what he's doing, doesn't he? That's what he's establishing there in the Sabbath rest. A time for you. Hey, you, stop what you're doing and come look at this. Nice, huh? That's what he's doing in the Sabbath rest idea. Take a break from what you're laboring at so that you can look at me. That's the type that's getting established. A type it's a concrete model, prophetic in its nature, pointing ahead to something else, 
pointing ahead to a time when all labor and all working will cease and life will be fully engaged with completely and perfectly gazing at God and what He's done. It's pointing ahead to a time when all struggling and all working will cease. To move through the Old Testament, this idea gets expanded on. When God gave the law to Moses, he wrote into it this idea of, of a Sabbath rest, one day in seven, one year in seven, etc. A resting from work in order to remember God, trusting him and his provision rather than the provision from our own hands. That's what God and the law commanded. It was meant to be prophetic, pointing ahead to the time when full rest would come. Full rest in here would come as full rest with our hands out here came. It's all looking ahead. Now, of course, that was abused throughout history. Laws commonly are, but you get the basic idea of what God's intention was with this. And at this time, the Sabbath was a time of doing no work and carrying your mat would have been a violation of the Sabbath law. Jesus knew that. Everybody knew that. Which is why they stopped this man when he's walking down the street carrying his mat. The Jews, probably meaning Jewish authorities, stop him and they say, It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be carrying that mat. And he accurately, but not very admirably, shifts the blame. Someone else told me to do it. And they say, Who? He says, uh, I didn't actually get his name. I was kind of wrapped up in what I was doing, what was happening to me. And he leaves. That's the gist of the conversation, but you need to look a little more closely at it. And when you see something, you find an additional nuance in this story. There are two perspectives here. Look closely at these verses and see the two different perspectives, how it's described. Verse 10, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is not lawful for you to do this. Verse 11, the man who healed me told me to do this thing that you're saying is not lawful. Verse 12. The man who told you, who, who's the man who told you to do this thing that's not lawful? Verse 13. The man who had been healed did not know. Verse 15. He came back and, and he told them, look closely, he told them, you want to know who it was that told me to break the law? Here's the man who told me to break the law. No, it doesn't say that. The man came back and told them who healed him. And so they were persecuting him because he was breaking the law on the Sabbath. Two perspectives here. The one who healed me, the one who was healed, and the one who told you to break the law and the one who's breaking the law. Two different things back and forth here in the narration. Healing, law-breaking. Healing, law-breaking. That's the thing that's kind of getting surfaced here. Those are the two perspectives. And the authorities are, in their perspective, are entirely missing the forest for the trees. They don't really see what's going on here. It's like I would be standing here talking to you with a third eye on my forehead. And as you're talking to me, you're entirely consumed with my body odor. Body odor is something you notice, right? If you're standing next to somebody, it's, you notice it. It's a little awkward. It's hard to kind of ignore it. But my goodness, if I had a third eye on my forehead, you'd see that. You, you couldn't help but talk about it. The body odor would fade into the background. It's a significant thing, but not like that. Who's not keeping the Sabbath here? 
Who's not ceasing from their normal work to observe the work of God? If God has actually broken into the world, and they should at least consider this question, we should at least consider this question, if God has in fact broken into the world, the Lord of the Sabbath has come, then he has the total right to do what he wants on the Sabbath, to heal, and this carrying of the mat is part and parcel of that healing. It's a sign, it's a testimony to the completeness of it, but they don't want to ask. Don't bother me with talk about your healing. I want to talk about my law. Two perspectives. And miss the forest for the trees. Later, we, we don't know how much later, Jesus found him. And notice, by the way, they didn't bump into each other. The man didn't find Jesus. Jesus is on the initiative in this story. He knows what he did on the Sabbath. He knows who this guy is. He probably knows the conversation he had with the Pharisees and he goes to reintroduce himself so as to close the loop off. He wants this known. He finds the man in the temple, warns him about his sin, talks to him about how his physical healing is not enough because he still has a sin problem. It'll bring him something far worse, I think referring to the loss of eternal life, eternal rest. And the man went away I don't want to read too much into this, but it is interesting that when sin gets brought up, the man went away and went back to the authorities to turn Jesus in. It was Jesus. That's the guy who healed me. And so they persecute him. But by the way it's expressed, we can tell that the persecutions didn't only stem from this one incident. This was Jesus' habit. He was doing these things, plural, on the Sabbath, repeatedly. And the answer that he gave to this in verse 17, his habitual answer didn't help things. He was doing these things, he was getting conflict from them, and he was constantly saying something back to them. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but suffice it to say, it was not an apology. He keeps repeating, my father is working until now, and I am working. This does not tamp down the flames, it fans them blasphemous in their eyes. We'll talk about that in a minute. So they seek to kill him. And what we'll have next week is Jesus' sustained response to their position. This is our text for this morning. And what's the main theme of it? Well, here's the main theme. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So come to him for rest. Two halves there. The weight of the passage falls on the first half. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. John, as usual, is holding Jesus up, showing us something different about him. The main thing he's getting across here is Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But we're not just supposed to take that for intellectual benefit. That's the content. But what's the intent? Well, we're supposed to see that. So you shouldn't be persecuting him. You should be coming to him for the Sabbath rest that God gives. So those are the two halves. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Come to him for rest. Let's start with Jesus. It's the first point that we need to get straight. The whole book is about Jesus. And here, uniquely contributed here, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He is the master of it, the creator of it, the ruler over it, and therefore has the right to act in it and on it in any way that he pleases. 
We see this displayed in what he did, and we see it declared by him both. His power to to work on the Sabbath is displayed clearly in the healing. That's the most obvious thing here. The kind of power that he has over nature. Repeatedly, as you walk through the book, you read the Gospels, he's in charge in stunning ways. This is not human-type power. An invalided man of 38 years, that doesn't exist in human beings. And how he wields that kind of power in such a good and gracious way, it's so messianic of him. It connects back to what the Old Testament said, that one would come in such power and in such good power. You read this, it should get your wheels turning. The miraculous works this man, Jesus, is performing, man, it seems that he's more than a man. Who is he? It should get your attention. He's not borrowing someone else's power. He's not praying in hope. He just says stuff. And not even really be healed. He just says, get up and walk because you already are healed. Because I just thought it. It's really interesting and it should get your attention. He's showing something. He's displaying something here. On the Sabbath. I have the power to do what I choose. I pick you, go home. And it's done. That's obvious. But though that's more obvious to our eyes on the surface, it's overshadowed in importance by what Jesus declares about himself when he gives his explanation as to why he is allowed to do this. In verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Let's look at that statement piece by piece. My Father, he said. That might not seem like that much to us. We see that kind of thing a lot. We say that in our culture a lot. We pray to God, our Father. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us, but verse 18 records that it was a significant statement to those who heard him in his culture. In Judaism, especially the Judaism of the day, it is a term of endearment and close relationship. Now, occasionally, Jewish worshipers would refer to God as our Father or the Father. And calling him our, it's a little more distant. And very rarely, they would, have also, they would have said, my father. That wasn't unheard of, just rare. But more commonly, God was referred to with statements that were deemed more respectful and formal. Titles like the Lord. Or with indirect phrases like the one who is in heaven. Something like that. That was far, far more common. But for Jesus, what's far, far more common is for him to use the term father and also very often my father. We see it all throughout this book. He, said, he, he speaks like this. And we know from this passage what people heard when he said this. The Jews heard him and correctly heard him repeatedly, it was his habit, repeatedly calling God his own father. Very unique closeness. And he did this all the time. It was his habit. He repeatedly called God his own father, making himself equal to God. That's what they heard, and they were correct. He did this all the time. Opposition rose against him. Plenty of opportunity for him to say, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. you think I'm calling God my, my own father, making myself equal to God? No. 
Now I see why we're in conflict. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I don't mean that. Heaven forbid that I would claim equality with God. He alone is in heaven. I'm one of you all. Or maybe a little bit higher than you all, but I'm not him. He does not say that. But instead, repeatedly keeps saying the same thing. My father. They heard him correctly. He's claiming equality with God. He had to. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Two beings. In the beginning is this Word and God. He's with God always, forever into eternity past, never coming into existence ever. Always there with God, and God was the Word. There is one divine nature, only one. God the Father has this divine nature, and the exact representation of that being is also in God the Son. As Jesus will say in John 10, I and the Father are one. Not one in purpose or one in intent, one in nature. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he will say later. I and the Father are one. This is the heart of the Trinity. One God. Multiple persons. We're talking about two right now, but there are actually three. We'll see in latter chapters that the Spirit also is fully God. One God. Three persons. Blessed Trinity. And if Jesus is claiming this and he is wrong, then the Jews are right to oppose him. But if, and they should ask this question, if, look at the sign, if, He's correct in saying, I and the Father are one. My Father, I'm equal with God. I have come down to earth and I walk among you as the Lord of the Sabbath. They had better pay attention. And so must we. God has come now. The fullness of deity in bodily form. Incarnate. The day of Sabbath rest has dawned in Jesus. Look to him. My father. The statement continues. It's working until now. The legal issue on the Sabbath don't work. Don't do this, don't do that, certainly don't carry your mat. Well, he says, but my father is working even until now, to this very day. And actually, this part of the statement would have. Been, the Jews would have been in complete agreement with him on this. It's the first part and the last part that are the trouble, but the middle they get and are in agreement. In one sense, God rested from his work on day seven of creation. He didn't make anything new. But he didn't really stop working entirely. How's that? Well, everybody agreed because though there are some religious philosophies that say that God created things, and then step back and let it all go, leaving it to function by its own naturalistic means, uninvolved from it. Some philosophies say that, but certainly not the Bible, certainly not Judaism, certainly not Christianity. God not only created everything that is, but is still, moment by moment, actively engaged with it, sustaining his creation, superintending over the affairs of this world, actively reigning and sustaining and controlling. He never takes a time out, never goes on vacation. He is always engaged with maintaining life here. 
Babies are conceived and born on every day of the week. Rain falls on every day of the week. The sun shines. The atmosphere holds together. God hears and answers prayer every day of the week. We draw breath each day, and not a one of these things would happen if God was not intimately engaged with holding together and sustaining his world. Nobody believed that God didn't work on the Sabbath. Of course he works. That's not the problem. He's always at work. He alone is always at work. God always actually does have the hammer and the drill in hand and is always working in his creation, working in people, working in situations to make them, to move them, to refine them, to correct them. He always is doing that. He can do what he wants. He can give them orders that are in conjunction with his work. Like, for instance, I've healed you. Take up your mat and go home. He can do that. That's God's prerogative. No one would have objected to that. It's the next phrase that's trouble. My father is working until now, and I am working. That which God alone does, God alone does, always working, even during Sabbath, sustaining and restoring and fixing, creating and recreating 24-7, 365, me too. Emphasis on me in the text. Jesus loads that up. I myself also do just that. There are two sides in this Sabbath question. God and creation. Which side am I on? God. Equal with the Father, Lord of the Sabbath. Displayed in the healing. Look at the sign text wants to keep emphasizing, look at the sign, declared in his response to the accusations, God could do that. I'm God, therefore I can do that. It's right for me to do that. This day was made for God to work and for his creation to look at him and marvel. That's what I'm doing. Look at me and marvel. The Sabbath has come in me. Do you want to be healed? Do you? Because I've got something to offer you. You want to be healed from your spiritual striving. Maybe now, physically too. But do you want to be healed from your spiritual striving now and get into a place with me, get into me, into this Sabbath rest that will one day lead to all kinds of vast healing, vast rest? Do you want that? Gaze at me as you rest here. Takes us to the second point. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So, come to him for rest. The second point. It's his power. It's in his power to give Sabbath rest. Rest from striving and struggling and failing. From growing tired. And listen to how all these words have a physical and a spiritual meaning to them. Struggling and striving and failing and and tiring and thirsting and aching. Blindness and lameness and paralysis. Rest from all of that spiritually and even physically. 
That kind of rest is what Jesus gives. That's why God gave the Sabbath. In, in Mark 2, in another instance where Jesus is in conflict with the authorities over something that he did on the Sabbath, he ends his response there by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Listen to that closely. The Sabbath was made for man, for man and woman, for people, not the other way around. God made the Sabbath and gave it to us, for us. Do you get that? He gave it. It's a gift so that you can have a moment here to pause from your labor and to rest in here by looking at Him, by seeing Him, by communing with Him. It's His gift given to you. And you've turned it around, guys. You've made it as if we exist for the Sabbath. He's saying there. Elsewhere, He says, it's the gift of God. So, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit. The call of Jesus, come to me if you're burdened and you're weary and you're tired, and I'll give you rest. I can because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Come to me, cast yourself wholly onto me, he says. Go to Jesus, giving all hope up, giving up all hope of ever being good enough, clean enough, competent enough. Come to him wholly trusting in his grace alone, not after you have done all that you can. That's not grace. Come to him for his grace right now, admitting I can't do anything that makes me worthy. Jesus, I come to you broken, burdened, heavy laden. I come, help. I know something of who you are. You claim authority to be able to give rest. How he does that is by taking care of your sin, which is the inhibitor of your rest. He's on his way to the cross. All this opposition that's growing leads to his death, which leads to the means for your rest. He takes care of your sin. He's provided a way for you to have rest. Come to him for your own good. It'll glorify God to be sure. He gets to say, look, look at what else I do. I provide rest to people, but you get rest. Come to him. You come in this manner, he will never drive you away, but will take care of your sin and calm your heart. Obviously, if you've never come to him today, right now is the best time possible. Why not? Are you weary and heavy laden? Come and find rest. I realize that most of us here already have. I look out and I, I know most of you, and I know that most of us, myself included, have already come to Christ to find rest. But I also know that as for myself, stress and pressure are often close companions of mine. I have days, weeks, of coming home, throwing the keys on the counter and collapsing into the sofa. Fleeing the troubled world out here to find another troubled world right here. I'm familiar with that, are you? 
Do you know that life? I bet. What do you do? Well, you need rest. Physical rest, probably. I could use some more sleep. But beyond that, spiritual rest. Because what you really need is God. What your stressed out, troubled heart needs is not an end to stressful and troubling situations. That is never going to come while you walk this earth. It's not. What your heart needs, what you need, is a captivating vision of beauty. A captivating vision of beauty amidst all the ugliness out there. You need love amidst all the spite. You need mercy amidst all the vindictiveness, wonder amidst all the mundane, joy amidst all the sorrow, security amidst all the uncertainty and the fear. That stuff is never going to go away, but what you need is a captivating, controlling vision with which to fight it. And that comes from ceasing your work and gazing at God. From finding Sabbath rest. You are meant to hold your mean-spirited co-workers, stab you in the back, You're meant to hold them right here. Don't try to forget about them, they're real. You recall everything that they said. You reflect on the fact that you failed in that presentation or that you're failing in your career or that you're failing with your kids. You reckon it true that at this moment right now, marriage is difficult. Finances are tight. Your health is not good. You reckon all of that as true. And then you read, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You say, oh, that is me. Come to me, he says. Come to me, and I give you rest. By removing all that stuff? Not now. Maybe. I mean, he might fix those things. But you come to him and you say, Lord, here's my burden. Can you give me rest? And, and can you teach me what I should do? The way I should go? How I should act? And while I'm doing that, while I'm walking and doing the best I can with this, trying to understand my role here, would you sustain my heart and give me peace and joy? Would you show me yourself? It's not very complex. By grace, in his timing, he'll do that. By grace, which means we're not obligating him, in his timing, which means we don't dictate when, he will do that. He'll show himself to you. It's, it's supernatural grace work in us. You can read the same thing. I was doing this this morning, reading a psalm again, wrestling with God, it says... In your presence there is fullness of joy. I don't know joy right now. It says, God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. I don't know joy right now. And I'm wrestling and saying, God, show me why your presence is joyful. Graciously, something turned in me. Didn't rise to the mountaintops, but I rose up a little bit. And I saw some of the joyful God. And whose presence he let me enter into. This is not complex. You've heard me say this. You, you know this. It's not complex. But it takes determination to do it. To not skip over it. If I'd only read through that verse once and said, I don't feel joy right now, closed up my Bible and left, I never would have got to it. 
Never would have risen up a little bit, but I stayed there with it because my heart was failing me. Just this morning, by grace, he helped me a little bit today. It, it's not complex, but it takes some determination to do it. And it takes time to do it. There is no hope in consistently seeing and gazing at God while you're stopped at a stoplight on the way to your next thing. It, it takes time. Because how he is found, you, you won't find him if you don't look for him, and how he is found is in the Bible, in prayer, and in fellowship with others. It takes some time to do that. Those things don't happen automatically, the drop of a hat. Maybe it would actually be good to practice a physical Sabbath rest. That's interesting. Kind of back around to the whole idea. I don't think this passage is teaching. I don't think, I could be wrong on this, there's disagreement, but I don't think the New Testament is teaching us anywhere that we must observe a physical Sabbath. Different people think different things about that. I don't think it's there. But there is certainly something there about you must gaze at God if you want to walk through this life. And that takes time, so therefore it would seem wise to set aside some extended time. So I encourage you, think this through a little bit. Where can you find a little bit of extended time? Don't start by making it a whole week or even a whole day. I'd, I'd maybe start with an hour. If you usually spend 20 minutes or 30 minutes of, of prayer and reading the Bible, maybe double it to an hour. If you usually spend 15, double it to half an hour. Just a little bit longer time. You know, an hour is about the length of a television drama. You might think, would I be more rested if I skip ER tonight and listen to some worship music and read a psalm and ask God to show himself to me, will that rest me more for tomorrow? An hour is a little bit less than half of a football game. Will I be more rested for this week coming up if I just skip just half of this game today? Read my Bible, pray, talk with my family or with another brother or sister about the Lord, would that more rest me in here and bless me actually? Not because I have to, but because it's a blessing, a gift to me? I think it might. As I've thought through this for this week, I've, I've seen a need for it in my own life. Some more extended time to rest with Him. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Rest comes from His hands. So go to Him rest. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.